Okay, so Murray Rothbard, 1926 to 1995. He was born in New York to immigrant parents. His uh, mother was from Russia. His father came from Poland. He grew up in New York City and he didn't stray too far from home. Uh, when he went to college, he went to Columbia University where he majored in mathematics and economics. Uh, he got his Master of Arts there and he finished his PhD there in 1956. His uh, PhD advisor was an economic historian, Joseph Dorfman, uh, which at least in part goes to explain Rothbard's interest, not just in economics, but economic history and really history in general. But it's his accomplishments later in life that were really remarkable. He wrote dozens of books and hundreds of articles and journals on topics of economics, history, philosophy, ethics, etc. His magnum opus is his treatise, Man, Economy, and State, and that treatise was finished by Rothbard when he was 36 years old, which is pretty impressive if you read that. Um, and he starts with undeniable truths, such as the basic axiom of human action, which says that in every action that man takes, he does so with intention, he does so with purpose. Man has goals and means to achieve those goals and the use of those means in the different ways that man is incentivized to manage those means with his goals is what Rothbard is analyzing. And so from the truth that um, Max, man acts with intention, Rothbard begins drawing out more and more truths that necessarily follow economic laws, such as supply and demand, marginal utility, etc. And then he continues further downstream into more complex economic issues, such as pricing, interest rates, business cycles, monopolies, etc. And Rothbard's approach in Man, Economy, and State is, is he's taking truth and he's systematically and deductively um, unpacking more and more truth. And he, his work really stands midstream in the Christian tradition of natural law reasoning. And he himself was very conscious of this, even though he was not a Christian. And with, of course, the usual qualifications that I don't agree with every jot and tittle from uh, Murray Rothbard, I will say on a personal note that Man, Economy, and State has done a lot for me in illumining the natural order of God's creation and how it works. But Rothbard did not stick purely to the field that he was trained in. And in this talk, I want to put forth some of Rothbard's arguments from his book called Egalitarianism as a Revolt Against Nature and other essays. And in the introduction to the book, Rothbard explains that, um, you know, most people going to college to study economics do so because they hope to help solve some of the world's political and social problems, and they rightly recognize that economics is at the center of those challenges, and Rothbard was among them. But he complains that often economics, like many other fields of study, can become hyper-specialized. Pretty soon a bunch of students who were once ambitious to change the world become narrowly focused in some way and he saw a lot of economic majors uh, finding jobs just doing math and Rothbard didn't want to become simply a mathematician. He says this, quote, it is no accident, however, that the economists of this century of the broadest vision and keenest insight, men such as Ludwig von Mises, Frank Knight, and F.A. Hayek came early to the conclusion that mastery of pure economic theory was not enough, and that it was vital to explore related and fundamental problems of philosophy, political theory, and history." End quote. So in Man, Economy, and State, Rothbard gets to the analysis of the effects that a state 
has on the free market, and it doesn't take him long to start showing how those effects really mess things up. They begin disrupting things. Indeed, they go contrary to the natural order, or as we Christians might say, they go contrary to God's creational design and created natural order. So you can see how Rothbard, while unpacking these economic truths, comes to a point where political theory and ethics all of a sudden become major issues tied to economics. Okay, Rothbard wanted to change the world, so he didn't stick to economics purely. Rather, he wanted to explore the philosophy, the political philosophy, political and economic history. He wanted to understand the past from a broad perspective. He wanted to trace the history of ideas and to help point forward to a better future. Now, through all of this, Rothbard really became the most consistent natural law libertarian thinker of our age. Jonathan, catch up. And he earned the title enemy of the state, okay, because he, he ended up uh, pushing his libertarianism and, and pointing out in various ways how the state is the enemy of us. And so he got coined with that nickname, enemy of the state. And so the title of this talk is, is riffing off of that enemy of the egalitarians. So let's dive into that subject. But I wanted to set it up a little bit with Rothbard's history and context. So in um, egalitarianism as a revolt against nature, Rothbard starts by showing that the idea of equality, whatever that means, and we'll circle back to that in a minute, but equality is a virtue that almost everyone seems to agree is a good thing. It's written on the back of football helmets and basketball jerseys nowadays. It seems almost ubiquitous that equality is a good thing. And the context in which we are talking about equality and egalitarianism and so forth tonight is concerning ideas of justice within society. The egalitarians argue that justice is equality. Okay, the way to make everything just in the world is to make everyone equal. John Rawls was a philosophy professor at Harvard. Uh, he was a contemporary of Rothbard. Um, and, and quite famous in, in egalitarian thought, but he brought a twist to egalitarian ideology. Rawls argued for justice as fairness. He basically agreed that equality is to be pursued, but there may be some things among humans that are permissible to be unequal as long as they contribute to fairness in society. So an example of this might be that Jonathan and I want to meet up at a pub and there are a few pubs that we could go to. There's one that's 10 min a 10 minute drive away from me and a 10 minute drive away for Jonathan. And so everything's equal. We have equality and that's what the egalitarians would opt for. But then there's a pub that's two minutes away from me and 15 minutes away from, from Jonathan. And I might be tempted to lobby for that, but we could recognize that maybe that's not the fairest approach. But then there's a third pub that is a nine minute drive for me to get there and seven minutes for Jonathan. And we both agree that while it's not equality, okay, we're not settling for equality, we're settling for what we agree to be fair. For Rawls and the rest of the egalitarians, social justice is distributive justice. It's aiming for coerced equality or at the very least some coerced fairness. Rothbard points out that the progressive political left had tried to ground the virtue of equality with some principle, okay? Rawls framed it in what is known as the original position and the veil of ignorance, which says that if we could create a social world to be born into, 
before we were born, we would all hedge our bets by picking an egalitarian world. Otherwise, we, we would just be you know, rolling the dice on whether we would born at an advantage or disadvantage in relation to everyone else. Meanwhile, the conservative right tended to acknowledge that, in theory, equality is a good thing. It's a virtuous concept. But, they said, in the end, it's just not practical. It's impossible in some respects. In other, in other words, the right, the conservatives, granted to the left the ideological argument. But unfortunately, they said, the ideology is just unpractical. And Rothbard blasts the conservatives for this. He says, quote, we must challenge the very idea of radical separation between something that is true in theory, but not valid in practice. If a theory is correct, then it does work in practice. If it does not work in practice, then it is a bad theory, end quote. So Rothbard blasts the conservatives for not holding the line on that. And those practical arguments from the right are no match against the inertia of the thinking to lean toward the status quo arguments that equality is good, is virtuous. And so you have just about everyone in America standing up for equality today, like it is a national cornerstone virtue. But Rothbard challenges this. He says, how do we get to the point where we say that equality is virtuous in the first place? How is this ethical claim grounded? And for Rothbard, eth ethical claims must be grounded in natural law, not some gooey moral intuition. Rothbard wants to look at the natural order, the design of the world, and examine the arguments for equality in light of that. So everyone can look at the created order and see diversity and unequalness all around. So the, the issue really is whether or not equality should be forced or not by some governmental dictate. So Rothbard states this, quote, the great fact of individual difference and variability, that is inequality, is evident from the long record of human experience. Hence the general recognition of the anti-human nature of a world of coerced uniformity, end quote. Okay, so now back to that fundamental question. What is meant by equality? Well, Rothbard says the obvious, that A and B are equal if they are identical to each other with respect to a given attribute. So if you have one stick that's two meters long, another stick that's two meters long, we can say that they are both equal in respect to length. Okay, so in what attributes do egalitarians want humans to be equal to one another? Well, in all of them, Rothbard says. Otherwise, there isn't really equality in e any real sense. So let's say we're able to force everybody to be equal in one particular way, but the crowds, the masses could still complain that, hey, we're not equal uh, completely, and that may have effects on the one way in which we are equal. And I think this will become clear as I move on, but first Rothbard points out the horrors of the egalitarian ideal to make humans equal in every respect. And to highlight this, he draws from a short story. Quote, the year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law, they were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. 
And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains." End quote. Rothbard is, is highlighting the horror of coerced equality. And he says, we feel the horror of it precisely because we know, we know that mankind is, quote, uniquely characterized by a high degree of variety, diversity, differentiation, in short, inequality. An egalitarian society can only hope to achieve its goals by totalitarian methods of coercion, end quote. For Rothbard, this kind of egalitarianism is truly a revolt against nature. It is patently anti-human and is therefore evil. But where does this natural inequality come from? For one, Rothbard says, it's biological. Some people are taller than others. Some are smarter than others. Some are prettier than others. Some have red hair. Some have black hair. Some are men. Some are women. And this all sounds like a very brave thing to say. Here's how Rothbard puts it, quote, but it is precisely such a conclusion about biology and human nature that is the most galling of all possible irritants to our egalitarians. Even egalitarians would be hard put to deny the historical record, but their answer is that culture has been to blame. And since they obviously hold that culture is a pure act of the will, then the goal of changing the culture and inculcating society with equality seems to be attainable. In this area, the egalitarians slough off any pretense to scientific caution. They are scarcely content with acknowledging, bio acknowledging biology and culture as mutually interacting influences. Biology must be read out of court quickly and totally, end quote. Okay. Biology must be read out of court quickly and totally. So imagine going into a coma after hearing Rothbard say that in 1974 and thinking, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Interesting. And then waking out of that coma in 2022 and looking around. Rothbard was dealing with arguments back then that are only now being brought into broad scale adoption into the cultural status quo. I'm a redhead and redheads are supposed to be more temperamental, if you will, than peoples of other hair colors. And this is an inequality. And let's say that the, the scientists do their research and on the whole it appears that this is true, we're more temperamental than others. So how does an egalitarian explain it? Well, simply by social conditioning, okay? Redheads have been told so much that they're more temperamental that the claim gets internalized to the point that the gingers start acting it out. <laughs> and Rothbard doesn't deny that such social conditioning can, can happen in certain circumstances. But he says, as in the case of redheads and their temper, it's pretty unreasonable. He argues that the egalitarians assume that culture just arrives to such opinions randomly, as if there's no reference to any social facts. But maybe it's more reasonable to say that redheads being temperamental is an idea that didn't just appear out of thin air. It's more likely that there is actually something to it. Well, the egalitarian says, the public had a psychological need to accuse some social group of being temperamental and the redheads were singled out, okay? But that doesn't explain everything. Why not blondes? Why not brunettes? Maybe, Rothbard says, redheads were singled out because they were and are more temperamental 
and society's stereotype is simply a general insight into the facts of reality. The egalitarian always responds with, no, gingers have been oppressed and discriminated against. Amen. Can I get a second? <laughs> of course, in Rothbard's day, the, deal ha you know, the, the big deal had nothing to do with redheads. The discovery of women, on the other hand, as an oppressed class was. So what does Rothbard have to say about that? He first points out that, historically speaking, in virtually every culture and civilization, from complex ones to simple ones, men have been the ones in authority positions. Okay? Men have been the ones in authority positions, despite any fantasies about the mighty Amazonian empire. But, aha, the egalitarians say, this is just more proof of cultural brainwashing, just like the redheads and their temper. Rothbard gives a couple of replays to this. Uh, the first one is a snarky one, and he says, no, this is just proof that men are more superior than women. The less snarky answer is this. He says, quote, biology itself is being angrily denied and cast aside. The cry is that there are no, can be no, must be no biological differences between the sexes. All historical or current differences must be due to cultural brainwashing, end quote. Rothbard then goes on to make the case, mainly quoting various scientific experts, that the biological differences between men and women are really, really significant. From the distinctive female experience of maternity to different hormones and different hormonal activity at different ages, to different possibilities due to different musculature, to the psychology of active and passive sexual roles, to different genetic factors that bear upon intellectual and physical performance, and so on. And at the very least, whether or not one would agree with all of the evidence that Rothbard brings up, there is enough there to say, yes, there are differences between men and women, and they are significant in a number of ways. I recently read an article uh, where some research medical doctors, they, they know that there are about 6,500 different genetic expressions between men and women, and this is critical to them for understanding appropriate medical treatments for each gender. But the biological differences between men and women is one thing. Another thing is the sheer genetic diversity globally between individuals. Right? We have immense diversity, or you might say immense inequality. For Rothbard, the egalitarian's uh, denial of biological realities is only part of a larger rebellion, a rebellion against the very organization of nature. Let me say that again. The egalitarian's denial of biological realities is only part of a larger rebellion, a rebellion against the very organization of nature. Rothbard says, quote, at the heart of the egalitarian left is the pathological belief that there is no structure of reality, that all the world is a tabula rasa, a blank slate, that can be changed at any moment in any desired direction by the mere exercise of human will. In short, that reality can be instantly transformed by the mere wish or whim of human beings, end quote. And for us in 2022, this is all kind of old news. Well, what about equality of income, equality of opportunity, those kinds of things? Rothbard argues that the division of labor, the free markets, private property, the natural diversity, and inequality of things will work themselves out, but any coerced equality will fail because it's a wrong theory and won't work in practice. Besides, it's an impossible dream, this idea of the blank slate. I mean, what could the government do to provide equality of opportunity? Well, 
the best and most comprehensive attempt could be for the state to steal all babies at birth, or better yet, just uh, have them conceived in a laboratory, these little bundles of, of blank slates, and the state then can indoctrinate, train, and treat each one equally. Scary, and I don't think it's completely far-fetched. If you told me that the Australians were going to implement this soon, I wouldn't discount you immediately. But in these indoctrination camps, if you want to call them that, what if the nurses were a little bit gentler and kinder at the Cody, Wyoming State Nursery, and the nurses were a little rougher at the Panama City, Florida facility? Okay. What about the differences in the climate? How is that going to affect people's upbringing? There is virtually an infinite amount of variables that make even the best and most scary attempts at egalitarianism impossible. And make no mistake, the abolition of the family is a goal for egalitarianism. Okay? The public education system in America, from the state providing meals to providing sex education, is a case in point. So besides the philosophical problem of egalitarianism as an ideal, being a revolt against the natural order, egalitarianism has an insurmountable challenge when it comes to implementation. It also has the day two problem. Okay? Even if we were to somehow push the reset button and, make, and magically make everyone equal one day, and assuming this means that we're not just killing everyone, humans would still tend toward the economic laws of nature supply and demand, division of labor, marginal utility, etc. Everybody, just by living their lives, would be unequal on day two. Rothbard then proceeds to highlight how the egalitarian ideal of overthrowing the natural order of things is a staple of communist fantasies and the socialist agenda. Socialism, by definition, is an economic and political way of force-feeding everyone the same goods and services provided by the state, despite whether any particular individual wants or needs those goods and services. And notice the assumption there. Everyone is equal in the sense that they all have universal needs that only the state can provide for them. And this is beside that obvious point that the horrors of forced equality can only be a reality if there is a state to do the coercion. So statism, socialism, and egalitarianism are conveniently tied together. Someone once said that war is the health of the state, and so is egalitarianism. Because justice as equality has been granted as some ideal, it seems, at least by virtually everyone in our culture, and yet because it is so impossible to achieve, the state always has work to do. There's always another oppressed, marginalized, discriminated against type of person or group. And so the state enjoys being deputized to continue policing a problem that can never be solved. Okay, from licensing hairdressers to sales and income and property taxes to welfare programs and to the more obvious forms of equal opportunity and wealth redistribution. So egalitarianism, a moral ideal that is unattainable, is sort of the dancing partner with another ideal that is unattainable socialism. Or put another way, egalitarianism is a perfect platform upon which to build state control. So what's the strategy for fighting against the egalitarian agenda? For Rothbard, pointing out the lunacy of it is just a start. The state and the socialism it necessarily implements upon egalitarian assumptions must be disarmed. Okay, we live in a democratic form of, of state rule 
here in the United States, and this presents another angle for the state to continue doing what it does. Rothbard notes this, quote, with the rise of democracy, the identification of the state with society has been redoubled until it is common to hear sentiments expressed which violate virtually every tenet of reason and common sense, such as we are the government. The useful collective term we has enabled an ideological camouflage to be thrown over the reality of political life. If we are the government, then anything a government does to an individual is not only just and untyrannical, but also voluntary on the part of the individual concerned." End quote. So only the state has the force to try to coerce equality. But indeed, it seems as if we're this massive agenda of equality is one that we're all on a grand journey on to a higher state of justice, and thus the mindless signaling of equality on the basketball jerseys. Okay? It's a dangerous thing when the state, a supposed instrument of justice, is the one who defines justice. So Rothbard wants to remind us we are not the state. This is an us versus them thing. At the most fundamental level, Okay, just to kind of flesh this out a little bit more, there are individuals who participate in organizing society to obtain revenue by coercion, the state. There are other individuals who obtain revenue by producing goods and services that are voluntarily exchanged. So there are those who employ the political means to wealth and those who employ the economic means of free production and voluntary exchange. The state is the organization of the political means to wealth and the ideals of egalitarianism provide plenty of job security. The defenders of the state, the intellectuals, whether they be philosophical or religious, are the ones who work to keep the masses convinced that they need a segment of society, great and wise rulers, sometimes by divine right or sometimes just recognized as a necessary evil, but we need these rulers to protect all of us from the indescribable evils that would otherwise destroy us. Rothbard says this, quote, another successful device was to instill fear of any alternative systems of rule or non-rule. The present rulers, it was maintained, supply to the citizens an essential service for which they should be most grateful, protection against sporadic criminals and marauders. For the state to preserve its own monopoly of predation did indeed see to it that private an unsystematic crime was kept to a minimum. The state has always been jealous of its own preserve, especially as the state been successful in recent centuries in instilling fear of other state rulers. Since the land area of the globe has been parceled out among particular states, one of the basic doctrines of the state was to identify itself with the territory it governed. Since most men tend to love their homeland, the identification of that land and its people with the state was a means of making natural patriotism work to the state's advantage." End quote. And then he adds this, quote, "...the device of nationalism has only been successful in Western civilization in recent centuries. It was not too long ago that the mass of subjects regarded wars as irrelevant battles between various sets of nobles." End quote. So, bringing this all together. For Rothbard, the state, especially once it has spent some time getting greatly bloated, along with its mutually benefiting partners, want power through the offer of a blank slate, a metaverse, 
political protection for whatever you want reality to be as long as it conforms to the state's definition of justice. And taking that offer is union and loyalty to the state, and it really is all a ploy to destroy truth, deface nature, abolish the family, steal souls, and enslave people. And I think this is where we are today. And thus, Rothbard's libertarianism, a theory of justice resting on a solid foundation of private property rights where any coercion for any purpose is only appropriate in response to violation against someone's property rights. Rothbard bases his dedication to natural law, liberty, on truth, a truth that is objective and reasonable, or at least to all who submit to truth rather than trying to redefine reality and define justice in rebellion against the natural order. Let me conclude with one more quote from Rothbard whose advice toward social life together I think is, is applicable today. He says, quote, a lifelong dedication to liberty can only be grounded on a passion for justice. And to have a passion for justice, one must have a theory of what justice and injustice are. In short, a set of ethical principles of justice and injustice which cannot be provided by utilitarian economics. It is because we see the world reeking with injustices piled one on another to the very heavens that we are impelled to do all that we can to seek a world in which these and other injustices will be eradicated. Other traditional radical goals, such as the abolition of poverty, are, in contrast to this one, truly utopian. For man, simply by exerting his will, cannot abolish poverty. Poverty can only be abolished through the operation of certain economic factors. In short, man's will is here severely limited by the workings of, to use an old-fashioned but still valid term, natural law." End quote. And thank you.